From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. This program is made possible in great part by the generous support of you, our listeners. We are very grateful for that support. We appreciate all kinds of support that you give to us. For more information on how you can help keep this show on the air, please visit stateofbelief.com. And when you do that, you'll notice we've just launched a brand new website. Please take a moment to share your feedback. Uh, We've already heard from a, a couple of listeners who have had some difficulty listening to the show using the new website. If we don't find out about it, we can't fix it. So please make sure you send us your comments. After all, the whole point was to make the website easier to use and the contents of the show easier to find and share. That's stateofbelief.com. We took Labor Day weekend off, and I hope you did too. But in this day and age, getting back up to speed seems to be harder than ever. So much has been going on that we need to address. This weekend, of course, is the 16th anniversary of the attacks of 9-11, a tragic event that I think we now see was made only more tragic by the misguided responses of our society and our government. In case you missed it, last weekend we rebroadcast an inspiring interview with peace activist Orlando Rodriguez, who lost a son in the World Trade Center attack, but stepped up almost immediately to demand that the U.S. resist the temptation to wage war as a response. How right he was. And I urge you to take the time to look up and listen to that heartbreaking conversation at stateofbelief.com. That includes the unprecedented devastation wrought by Hurricane Irma this weekend, Hurricane Harvey last weekend, a major earthquake near Mexico, and whatever else is threatening us at the present moment. Also, one of those anti-gay wedding cake baker cases has made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Weighing in on the side of discrimination, the U.S. Justice Department. Also, unexpected cooperation between the president and the opposition, which, despite rhetoric to the contrary, is not the media, but in fact, the Democratic Party. Also, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. has announced it will be removing stained glass windows that honor Confederate figures. Also, the Public Religion Research Institute has come out with some shocking data on just how dramatically the religious landscape in this country has changed and just how clearly the current political Christian right surge in influence truly is a last gasp for this constituency. Also, Religion News Service has published a comprehensive profile of the religious right figures who are playing such a prominent role in the decision-making of this administration. We'll cover all of this and much more in the weeks ahead. But now, 
Here's what's coming up this week on State of Belief Radio. On uh, Friday, August 25th, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission jointly hosted a gathering of Christian leaders in Nashville. They wanted to finalize and approve the Nashville Statement in the hope of providing a biblically faithful standard. A bunch of political religious right figures thought last week would be the perfect time to issue a mean-spirited statement of beliefs condemning lesbian and gay persons denying the very existence of transgender persons, and, if you read carefully, pretty much damning anyone who has ever had sex outside of marriage. Now, I'm a firm believer that religious denominations have the right to espouse dogmas with which I may not agree. But we've been consistent on this show in addressing attempts to inject dogma into secular life. And it's been a long time since we've seen so much influence on the part of the political religious right in our government and politics. So a statement such as this is inherently political and inevitably destructive to people of faith who are condemned or outright erased by its contents. Thankfully, a number of evangelicals, as well as thousands of other faith leaders, quickly stepped up to rebut the Nashville Statement. Amusingly, even the mayor of that city publicly distanced Nashville from the screed bearing its name. On this week's show, I'll talk once again with activist Brandon Robertson about the faith-inspired response he organized within 24 hours to the statement. The battles over religion and politics in this country aren't fights between kind of God-hating secularists on the one hand and the faithful on the other. They're fights between, in many cases, different kinds of believers, um, and it's fundamentally about whether or not you believe in separation of church and state and whether or not you believe that one faith should kind of predominate in American politics. It's a question we've asked plenty of times on this show. How does the political religious right reconcile its claimed beliefs with its unwavering support for Donald Trump? Now, the most frequent answer is they're just in it for the power, so everything else can be rationalized. But what if it goes deeper? Think Progress senior religion writer Jack Jenkins has started a series of articles exploring Christian nationalism in an age of Trump, and Jack will be with us later on in this week's show. But first... Should dreamers be worried? We love the dreamers. We love everybody. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. Well... So much for the dream that being loved by the President of the United States might offer you some hope in actually building a life here, bolstering the speculation that the Trump agenda is being driven by a compulsion to undo everything Obama. Tuesday brought a characteristically ambiguous statement on the DACA policy affecting three-quarters of a million people in this country. The program is over. Congress has six months to address it, or else Trump will, will do something. 
who knows what. United Methodist Church Bishop Minerva Carcano has long been a leader in faith-inspired immigration activism in this country, and at this sad moment, I am grateful to be able to welcome her back to State of Belief Radio. Bishop Carcano, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. It's a privilege to be online with you. Were you surprised at the way this administration pulled the rug out from under hundreds of thousands of dreamers in our country? I was not. There have been threats since the campaigning for the presidency about walls and deportations and eliminating DACA as well. So we were expecting the worst, and certainly the worst has happened. Some commentators have focused on the six months the Trump administration says it's going to give Congress to act on DACA. Do you consider that to be at all significant? It's not enough time to begin with for the fixing of a broken immigration policy. There's also all this negotiating that makes of young people, DACA young people, a pawn in a game. We've heard reports of if you'll give us the money to build the wall, Congress, then we might do something for these young people. That is so cruel. It is so undemocratic in terms of process that we've understood to be our democratic process in this country. It is just an abuse of children and a use of children and young people. It's cruel. It's thoughtless. It's a game. And it's not fair. And it's certainly not just or humane. Bishop Cacano, I I know that you are surrounded by people who are dreamers and dealing with other problems with immigration. Tell me about a dreamer and the impact of what the president did this week on that dreamer. I want to hold up the story of a young woman I met a few years ago. She had gotten that DACA statement in her hand, that DACA document that gave her permission to work and to go on to school. She graduated from college. She is in medical school, getting ready to finish medical school. And now her life has been pulled out from under her. A young woman with such gifts and such compassion and such a desire to heal a hurting world, to, to come alongside those who are physically hurting and provide for them healing. It is amazing how how we have given very little thought in this country, starting with our president, to the gifts that these young people bring, their hope of a transformed world, their courage to do what they've done to come thus far. We We have abused their trust, the trust in, I've gotten the document, I've done the right thing, I'm going to prepare to serve, and now we're saying, too bad. You, you've got to, to do something else. You've got to go back from where you came from, whether you remember it or not, whether that country has any base, foundation, meaning for your life, family, whether it has that family or not. It's very unfair, and it's very short-sighted in terms of the needs of this country, the future of this country, short-sighted in terms of what we teach younger children about what happens in this country, whether they can trust or not. And in this moment, trust has indeed been violated. And uh, what do you say to someone like that? 
the truth is that they're speaking to me more than I'm speaking to them. Mm-hmm. And what they are saying is that they're not giving up. And many of them say they're not giving up out of love for their family and for this country. And they're not giving up because they feel God's presence with them. They know God to be a God of justice. And so they're not giving up. But there are some who are deeply hurting, who feel violated, who feel abandoned, who feel discarded, who feel their humanity just uh, attacked in some deep and profound ways. We have lots of conversations about how much these DACA students have contributed to the economy of this country, not only to the economy of their families, but the economy of the country. But these young people are saying to me, we're, we're not just an economic source. We're human beings, mm-hmm. and we should be treated as human beings. When I hear our president use the word love and say, oh, I love these people, and then do what he did to them, uh, I have real problems uh, of what I think about him. Um, you are a theologian as well as a compassionate person. Uh, how do you see love in what uh, we've been through the last several days? There has been no love. Love is not an abstract emotion. Love is a way of being. Love is a way of living. And when you love someone, it shows through your actions. It comes through your words. It is expressed in the way that you uphold and sustain the one you love, the community that you love. Uh, President Trump has not demonstrated an ounce of love for these young people. He's used the word love as a way to send out a political message. But love is not a political matter. Mm-hmm. Love is, is that living with in a way that, that sustains the other, sustains the other in, in their sacredness. They're, we're all sacred in our being and in our worth because we're all children of God. Mm-hmm. And love is real. Love is real. Uh, Christians believe that God loved us so much that Jesus died on a cross for us. Well, the kind of love we've seen this week has no sense of of reality, much less sacrificial love at all. Thank you. It helps me to hear you talk about love. That's the kind of, of love I know. So what are we going to do? What 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 are the most important things to keep in mind about the announcement Jeff Sessions made last week? Well, we need to keep in mind that no no young person under DACA is going to be deported today. That's our hope, that there is indeed a process and that we have a window to respond. I think there are several things we should be doing. I think the most important one is that we should be stopping and loving young people, young undocumented people, whether they have been recipients of DACA or not. We must take that time to sit with them, embrace them, hear their anguish, hear their stories, and hear their continued hope. Mm -hmm. We need to do that, and we need to do that not only with them, but with their families in our churches, on campuses. I know many campus ministers 
who are serving in universities and colleges across the country who are doing precisely what I've just described. We need to join them. We need to embrace these young people in very concrete and practical ways. And we need to hear what what they need. They they need to set the agenda, and we need to follow. We certainly need to be calling Jeff Sessions. We need to be sending our letters to President Trump. We need to be showing up at the offices in D.C. and in our states of our congressional leaders and saying that we support the DREAMers, that we support DACA, and we support the hard work that needs to happen to reform these broken immigration policies DACA's just a piece of it. And it's sad that it's our young people who are carrying the burden of these broken immigration policies. But if this is the window, then let's walk with our young people, care for them, truly love them, and advocate with them for a reformation that respects them and that gives them a measure of trust anew in this country, in our communities of faith as well. We know what the president's decision uh, did to people in DACA status. It's not good for them, and it's not good for their families. But isn't it true to say it's also not good for America? That's correct. It's not good for America. America is an aging community, an aging nation. Immigrants are a younger population. They are coming and filling places of work and places in the economy that we need them to be in. Uh, That is a reality. Economists have reported that. Business people tell us that all of the time that without the immigrant labor force, we could not continue to exist at the economic level that we are accustomed to, that draws people to this country. They are a sustaining force in this country. There's something to be said about uh, the diversity that, that immigrants bring. It's a diversity of culture, a diversity of spirit, a diversity of ideas, of imagination, that can help us create the world that is yet to be created, a better world, a more just world. And all of that is what keeps a country vital. It's what's kept this country vital. And why we always stop and, and do what we do to the immigrant over and over and over again is beyond me, beyond my understanding. I think it's a deep-rooted racism, and we need to address that racism as well. Bishop Minerva Concano is the first Hispanic woman to be elected to the Episcopacy of the United Methodist Church. She currently serves as Bishop of the California Nevada Annual Conference, as well as being the official spokesperson for the United Methodist Church on the issue of immigration. Bishop Concano, thank you for being with us again on State of Belief. Thank you. It's my privilege, and let's keep praying. Let's keep working with our DACA uh, young people. There's lots more still to come on this week's show. Brandon Robertson will be back with us to discuss the massive faith-inspired response he helped to organize to the so-called Nashville Statement. But first, a frightening look at the resurgence of Christian nationalism with Jack Jenkins from the Center for American Progress. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you 
by Interfaith Alliance. A lot has been written about the ugly revival of white nationalism in this country. We've had plenty of discussion about the untoward influence of the political religious right that has defied demographic trends in the general population. Scary stuff, really. But scarier still might be a coming together of the worst of these movements. Jack Jenkins is senior religion writer at Think Progress, and he's the author of a new series on the resurgence of Christian nationalism in this country. Jack, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start by you explaining what you mean by the term Christian nationalism. Right now we're talking about the people who surround Donald Trump, who um, are trumpeting a fusion of faith and patriotism that attaches itself to Trump and his presidency and his rise. Um, these are people who believe that America should, is a Christian nation and that it should be actualized as a Christian nation and that we need to reclaim it from going off into sinful ways. And these folks also attach their theological ideals and that mission to um, Donald Trump's presidency. So that, that's the short answer and the very specific answer. But the truth is, the history of Christian nationalism is much broader than that and goes back far longer than that. I got the chance to speak to some historians recently, and the early Christian nationalism, in the very founding of America, there were uh, some of the first revolutionaries were folks who advocated for an explicitly religious vision of what would become the United States. Interestingly, th- that group was, was uh, explicitly anti-racist, <laughs> mm-hmm. and a lot of their goals would be very different from the modern Christian nationalists. Mm-hmm. But those groups didn't actually win. They didn't win in their quest to make America that way. They lost out to what we now call the Founding Fathers, mm-hmm. um, who had a very different vision of how America should function, an explicit separation of church and state, a disestablishment, you know, no established church. So, um, but over time, what we developed in this old-school definition of Christian nationalism was this way of talking about politics that um, scholars tell me, you know, is sometimes called civil or civic religion, and sometimes called basically a soft version of Christian nationalism. This Hmm. is the fact that we often refer to our founding documents and our founding fathers as if they are sacred, right? You know, Mm -hmm. that we talk about the Constitution sometimes in ways that mimic biblical or scriptural debates. This is the fact that every um, uh, social leader who leads a social movement in the United States often claims to, to be a restoration of that original American ideal, that they're reaching back for something. And this is the fact that, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you, we often talk about God or spirituality or religion in our political discourse. I mean, just this past year, um, we had the Republican National Convention, where God was obviously mentioned, but arguably the Democratic National Convention was more overtly, cre- um, overtly Christian. I mean, we had lots of references to God. We had pastors delivering um, you know, speeches, primetime speeches, at the Democratic National Convention. Right. But, so this is kind of like the broader way in the United States that we talk about Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. But that is distinctly different from how it is being realized um, by the mostly evangelical leaders that have surrounded Trump. Um, that this is more than just saying that America 
is special and that our, our founding documents are important. It's more than just citing um, Christ while you, you know, uh, try to shore up a version of health care. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's saying that Christianity needs to be the, count, the founding principle for America and that it should be a Christian nation. And um, especially the part of these Christian nationalists where they attach themselves to Trump, when Christian nationalism uh, attaches itself to a leader or a party, um, there is precedent for that, not necessarily in the United States, but in other parts of the, con- other parts of the world, and it's a dark history. Mm. So are we talking here about politics, or are we talking about theology? <laughs> That's an excellent question, um, because the, the lines are very thin for Christian nationalists in that there is no line. <laughs> the modern Christian nationalists, the one I'm talking about, these are Paula White, this is Robert Jeffress, this is Franklin Graham, this is Jerry Falwell Jr., these different leaders who have all articulated versions of Christian nationalism in recent days. Their progenitors are, you know, are, are far more recent. Under the Bush era, there were a group of people who uh, ultimately ascribed to a form of theology um, often described as dominionism. So mm-hmm. it's the idea that God gave um, humans um, the earth. They gave them the, the charge to have dominion over the earth, and these, this group extends that to politics. So they created their own you know, Christian universe in some ways. They, they developed really intense homeschooling efforts where they have their own um, textbooks that you know, say the earth is only so, thousand, so many thousand years old. It, it, it describes the founding of America in explicitly Christian terms. And mind you, these textbooks all reference each other, but they are um, part of this worldview that these Christian nationalists built. And so um, by, by the time you get to where we are now, where a lot of these groups who, to be clear, this is a subset of, of evangelical Christianity. They were French under Bush. Um, they were described by one journalist who follows this group a lot to me. They, they, they were described as B and C list evangelical leaders. They've now been lifted up underneath Trump and hold way more power and sway than they have in previous years. Um, and now, you know, they, they describe Trump as having been anointed by God to be president of the United States. What vision do Christian nationalists have of God? What, what is the character of the God that they worship? I will say, admittedly, that this changes a little bit depending on who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. I mean, Christian nationalism can permeate different traditions, but I think some of the, the, the consistent trends between these people who articulate Christian nationalism is that God has at some point favored America, mm-hmm. like that God has blessed this country beyond belief, um, beyond what other countries have been blessed with, because it has been favored in some capacity. So it's a God that likes either America as it used to be or what it will be, and so it favors that. It's also a God that seems to um, you know, delve into what is often described as, you know, kind of cosmic or spiritual warfare, right? So you'll hear a lot of these Christian nationalists describe this sort of cosmic battle between good and evil, demons and angels. Um, and, you know, they usually lift up themselves as on the side of good and their opponents to whatever um, politics they ascribe to as on the side of evil. And it's also a God that attaches itself uh, to power, Right, mm-hmm. so it it is a god who you know a big floating tenet of this belief system is that God appoints leaders. Now, mm-hmm. interestingly, they didn't fight this as often when Barack Obama was president, but that that when 
leaders, they, they believe that when leaders are put into positions of power, that is part of God's plan, and that to oppose them is to oppose the will of God. And so it is important for Christians who ascribe to their worldview to um, do the best they can to support the leaders that are there. So it's a God who's, who manifests itself um, most fervently, and, and for them, most importantly, in positions of power. It doesn't mean that God can't reach across into different you know, subsets of society, but for them, the most important thing to talk about is where God sits in power. What is the Christian nationalist vision of our country? This changes a little bit depending on who you're talking to, but generally speaking, there's an idea that the United States was founded as a quote-unquote Christian nation. Mm -hmm. So like Paula White, who you know, gained notoriety as a prosperity gospel preacher and has now gained notoriety as a, as a confidant of Trump's. They, mm -hmm. She's been referred to as his God whisperer. Mm -hmm. um, when she gave an interview, she claimed that America was founded by the pilgrims to be basically a mission field for Christians, that its mm -hmm. whole goal was to kind of give the world a shining beacon of Christian society. And, you know, she followed that claim with saying that we need to take back, quote-unquote, our schools and our government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we need to reclaim this nation as a Christian nation. So that's very important to Christian nationalists, that this country um, was founded as a Christian nation. It's also very important for a lot of Christian nationalists to claim that it has been pulled away from that, right? So that these forces that Paula White described as demonic, you know, the Supreme Court rulings, and they're, they're especially opposed to same-sex marriage and abortion, that these were forces that have pulled us away from God, and that it's important to work to restore it. The idea of a restoration narrative is very important for these Christian nationalists. And, you know, thirdly, I'd say, for them, America is this place that was set aside. And that's similar to the idea of how it was founded, but it's this idea that God is involved intimately in the workings of the United States, and that God has disproportionately blessed this nation. Because God has blessed this nation, if you are a Christian, it is your duty to help basically repay that by you know, upholding what they believe to be scriptural beliefs or godly beliefs, mm -hmm. and that includes putting prayer back in schools, as they describe it, and opposing same-sex marriage and opposing abortion, mm -hmm. um, things like that. What were the forces that helped move these people to the margins in the past, and what do you think it's going to take this time to move them into the fringe? You know, one thing is that Christian nationalism has continued to reassert itself throughout American history, so it is unlikely to stay buried, as it were. One journalist who follows these groups a lot, who wrote a book on Christian nationalism in the mid-2000s, when it was kind of emerging as this fringe movement within evangelicalism, she noted that, uh, Michelle Goldberg, that in some ways they, both Trump and these sort of B and C-lister Christian nationalists um, and folks who weren't Christian nationalists at the time but seemed to be articulating Christian nationalist messages now, they found a solidarity in being French, with, like, in the same way that Trump was many, in many ways considered French. Mm -hmm. And um, so if it's surprising to some people to see folks like Mark Burns, who is uh, you know, a minister out of South Carolina, a very small church prosperity gospel minister out of South Carolina to suddenly be elevated to the national stage, part of that is that Trump found fellows on the fringe to help support him. 
Yeah. Um, he's now, to be fair, he's also supported by very institutional, um, traditional members of the religious right. But that element is, is a big part of why they cling to him. And so, honestly, um, one of the things I've seen is that there haven't been as many faith leaders on the left who traditionally have spent a whole lot of time speaking out against this explicitly, because for them it, it was a fringe movement. And while there are certainly groups that have spoken out against Christian nationalism, including many evangelicals, Ed Stetzer um, wrote in an evangelical magazine, Ed Stetzer is a, you know, a mm-hmm. professor of Wheaton College, an evangelical school, he spoke out against Christian nationalism as, as well. And I think mm-hmm. in order to marginalize something, if, if that's what people on the left would want to do, you would have to address it. And I think a lot of folks um, in the religious left, um, people of faith who oppose this sort of ideology, are still grappling with how to respond to it. But I think one way to do it is to respond with the religious message with another religious message, an alternative to it. So that would, that would be the, the first thing I have seen you know, historians would probably point to in the past, but also you know, something that people could, could hold on to for the future. Jack Jenkins is senior religion writer at Think Progress. His essential new series of columns on the resurgent Christian nationalist movement is available at thinkprogress.org. Jack, I really do appreciate you taking time to be with us on uh, State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Brandon Robertson has proven himself to be an effective organizer and leader for inclusivity and open dialogue within faith communities in this country and beyond. So perhaps it was no surprise that his efforts to organize faith leaders to speak out in support of the people attacked in the recent far-right Nashville statement garnered over a thousand signatures in less than 24 hours. I am pleased to welcome Brandon Robertson back to State of Belief Radio again. Brandon, thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. The Nashville Statement. Will you just give a brief synopsis of that so everybody will be on the same page? Two weeks ago, a group of conservative evangelicals spanning the Southern Baptist Convention, but also across denominations, released a statement called the Nashville Statement, which honestly was the most expansive and unequivocally condemning statement on sexual and gender minorities that I think has probably ever been released from a group of Christian leaders. Um, It condemned everything from asexual people to transgender people to LGBT um, people, and statement wasn't necessarily surprising. We all knew that all of these people that signed it had these views, but the problem was just, one, how expansive the signatories they had were. Um, They had less than a thousand people sign it, but it was really leaders from across various denominations. And when they did the press rollout, they did a really good job, so their statement got a lot of coverage across the country. Um, It's things like this that make Christians and people of faith look like we are anti-LGBT in the eyes of the general public. And as an LGBT pastor and activist myself, my heart breaks whenever a group of Christians step forward and kind of represent the whole of Christianity in this terrible, exclusive light. So 
we decided to respond. Do you know who did this, who started it, who was orchestrating this? Yeah, it's primarily organized by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, which is a group from the Southern Baptist Convention and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Um, They're kind of the driving force right now behind the American right-wing resurgence in a lot of ways, Um, and they're organizing all of these faith leaders on various issues, whether it's sexuality or immigration and a bunch of other issues. So they were the ones who had organized the statements and did the big push for it. The whole thing is uh, so damaging, but can you point to any part of the document that is particularly destructive as you read it? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it right now, and it's just statement after statement. It's written in a way that it says, we affirm, and then they affirm some traditionalist, conservative, biblical standpoints, and then we deny. And a lot of the denials um, are just, I mean clearly written and straightforward, saying that people that are of various sexualities or gender identities outside of the heterosexual, patriarchal uh, worldview that the Southern Baptists and the Evangelicals kind of hold as supreme, that these people are broken and walking outside of the way that Christ desires for us to live. Um, And they use language like immorality, um, dishonoring God's design, Um, drawn into sexual sin. It's just all of this very archaic, outdated, and condemning language that for most Americans is not going to be a problem. We can write this off. Mm -hmm. I think people would just say this is a group of crazy right-wing religious people, and that would be the end of it. But the problem is that this document is going to be used in churches all across this country, Mm -hmm. where there are youth and other people who might not be quite so open or educated about different ways of seeing the Bible and seeing Christian faith. And this statement is going to come across as kind of God's truth for them. And that has tremendous psychological and spiritual harm um, that will come in its aftermath of this statement being used in the pulpit or in church communities. Brandon, talk about who gets harmed by this kind of declaration. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost... I know this from experience, being a young adult and a youth growing up in a fundamentalist context. Uh, When you hear these things from the pulpit, when you hear your trusted pastor or youth minister affirm something like this, you take it as the truth, because you have this level of trust and aren't exposed to a variety of other perspectives. And so it's really the LGBT youth who are in these congregations that are going to hear this, they will, because these churches are hunkering down in this moment of culture wars once again. And when they hear this, they're going to be thrown into this internal struggle of either they can align with God and go to heaven when they die, or they can reject God and then be rejected by their family and their church community and be guaranteed a place in hell. And that sort of psychological ultimatum is so, so damaging. I mean, studies show that LGBT youth raised in religious contexts are eight times more likely to attempt suicide than those raised in non-religious contexts. And so that just shows the magnitude of the harm that can be done just by someone reading the statements in a church or in a youth group, um, because these words have so much power and meaning. 
Talk about, if you will, the response to the Nashville statement that you organized. Over a thousand names in less than 24 hours, is that right? Yes, it was really remarkable. Um, I've done statements many times before. I've organized things like this. And yet, I sat down literally the day that the statement came out, the Nashville statement came out, and just wrote from my own perspective, as somebody who studied theology, my own set of affirmations and denials. And I sent it around to a group of theologians, and then we just started pushing it out to some of the leaders of major denominations and other influencers. And literally by the next day when the statement was live on the Internet, um, a thousand Christian leaders had signed on to it. And today we're hovering around 3,000 people um, have signed on to this from across the world, literally, and it's just, it was this moment where we saw this reaction to the national statement that actually gave me hope to say that things are actually changing, and that our statement being signed by the heads of five major denominations representing millions of people around the world just shows that the Church of Jesus Christ isn't of one mind on sexuality and gender, and that the leading edge, I truly believe, is moving towards inclusion and acceptance, and that the national statement, my prayer and hope, is represents the dying breath of this far-right-wing Christian mm-hmm. movement that has held so much power over American Christianity, mm-hmm. in particular, over the past couple of decades. And so Christians United, our statement, I mean, I hope it stands as a historic moment, not because it's something that I did, but because so many people decided to step up to the plate and name themselves as open supporters of LGBT people in the life of the Church. Mm-hmm. Brendan, say to us what you would have someone in a church who hears their pastor say his endorsement of the Nashville Statement. Tell us what should be said. Do you actually know anyone who is openly LGBT and Christian? Because the reality is a majority of these signers have never met an openly LGBT person that feels that they've reconciled their Christian faith with their sexuality or gender identity. Hmm. And I found that out when I sat down with the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention the day before the statement came out. And he told us this story about how he was so proud to have lesbians go to his church But the lesbians came up to him and said that they were so happy to be there because he preached the truth and wasn't affirming their lifestyle. And that was just this moment for me of realization that so many of these pastors think that they might know LGBT people, but what they actually know are a few of the LGBT people who are falling on the conservative side of this debate and are living celibate lives or things like that, but they've never interacted with somebody who is truly at peace with God and at peace with who God has made them to be. And so my encouragement to anyone who would be in a congregation that would affirm the Nashville Statement would be to get and work to get your pastor to sit down with somebody who is LGBT and dispel all of the myths and stereotypes and let them see that there are tons, hundreds of thousands of us who are faithful Christians, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and also are LGBT and open Mm -hmm. and proud of who we are and how God made us. I think that's truly the only way that hearts and minds will change, not theological debate, and believe me, I've spent years doing that, but really the experience of flesh-to-flesh, person-to-person encounter. 
How can we be sure that the people marginalized by the Nashville statement hear voices of support loud and clear? The conservative world has a great media machine, and the progressive world doesn't have that for those of us who are particularly progressive people of faith. And this is something you've done so well, Welton, in the past, and yet, nonetheless, we need to have our voices, voices of LGBT Christians and those who support us, raised in media and raised in the public eye so that people get the idea that, again, Christianity is not of one voice on this. And to be honest, I was actually really pleased with the Christians United statements. Um, mm-hmm. We were covered in everything from the New York Times to NBC, and I was really excited to see that this voice was being raised in opposition to the Nashville statement in a way that people will be able to see it. But that needs to happen more and more. Mm-hmm. The LGBT Christian and the LGBT faith voice in general is often a marginalized voice. And the more people have visibility and can see that voice and hear that you can be a Christian and you can be openly LGBT, um, the more I think we will destigmatize and help liberate those who are marginalized in their communities of faith. Brendan, do you see a way for the people who've come together in response to the Nashville Statement to continue working together for a more inclusive religious environment in this country? We're definitely working to figure that out. Literally, right before I got on this interview, I'm working on um, organizing with a couple of different organizations to find out ways that we can get these 3,000 people that have signed on to continue spreading this message, not just of this statement that we came up with, but of inclusion and acceptance in church and in society. And so we're working on it and trying to figure out ways to empower and equip people to have what they need to be influential in their churches and communities. Um, And there are a number of other organizations that have risen up over the past decade that are really engaged in this work. And so I'm hopeful, and I would just tell anyone who's interested in getting involved in this to keep your eyes open, visit Christians United and the plethora of other LGBT faith organizations, and just support us and stay connected, because we're figuring out ways to continually make a cultural impact and help make the Church and the world a more inclusive place for everyone. A founder of the Revangelical Movement and the nonprofit Nomad Partnerships, Brandon Robertson is lead pastor of Mission Gathering Christian Church in San Diego, California. Brandon is the author of the book Nomad, A Spirituality for Traveling Light. Brandon, I really appreciate what uh, you're doing, as I have for a long time. I appreciate you being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate all that you do to lift up voices and these issues for justice. So thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. If you've made a donation to State of Belief Radio this week, I want to say a sincere thank you. I wish I could shake your hand and see your face and tell you face-to-face. If you've heard something on this week's show that you think would be helpful to someone you know, please share it. Share it with that person. Share it with other persons. Direct them to stateofbelief.com, where they'll find full episodes, an in-depth archive, extended interviews, transcripts, and links mentioned in the show. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and engage in the discussion. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. 
State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Now listen, if you're listening to this show today while trying to cope with all of the challenges, dangers, and anxieties that go with the onslaught of a hurricane, know that our thoughts are with you and our desire to help is strong. Until we speak to you next week, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy, that state of belief. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going now.